Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Pete with Liberal Fix Radio, and I do apologize. Uh, that's some technical internet Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host, Keith Breckett, and I do apologize for being about 10 minutes late. I um, had some internet uh, uh, difficulties, but we're online now. And uh, my guest today is Ralph, Ralph Burks. Um, and how are you doing tonight, Ralph? Well, I'm doing very fine. Uh, thank you, Keith. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, so I apologize to our listeners. I had a little bit of internet trouble, so we're getting a, a late start about 10 minutes late, but it looks like we got everything figured out and uh, and uh, we're here. So <laughs> so, so goes radio. But uh, anyways, uh, my guest um, tonight is the um, author of a book about uh, cholera in, in Haiti and, uh, and an epidemic there and um, the handling of that. And I'm going to pull up my stuff so that I can uh questions about that. But, uh, Ralph, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to us and a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, why you wrote the book and your experience there. Well, my name is, uh, as you mentioned, is Ralph Frericks, and I'm a uh, professor emeritus of epidemiology at UCLA. And I've been uh, retired now since uh, 2008, but uh, still had time to get involved in a book looking uh, called Deadly River, Collar and Cover-Up in Post-Earthquake Haiti. And it turned out to be quite an adventure writing this book, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Awesome. Very good. I'm, I'm excited uh, to talk about the book. Um, obviously a very important topic and, and certainly something that um, we haven't talked about on the show yet, even though we've covered a r- broad range of issues. So I think this will be something that people find interesting rather than sort of us going through some things that we've probably done five or six shows on and <laughs> repeating ourselves. So um, I guess uh, for a little background, in January of 2010, a, a catastrophic earthquake hit Haiti, which uh, I think was a 7, 7 or 7 plus on the Richter scale. And and uh, about how many people were affected, and how long after the earthquake did the world's uh, greatest cholera epidemic tear through the country, and uh, what was the impact of that? How many lives were lost? Well, the earthquake was, as you say, it was just a major, major earthquake, and it occurred in the southern part of the country. Haiti, by the way, is a uh, nation of about 10 million people. It's a Caribbean nation that's right next door to the Dominican Republic. Both the nations share an island uh, called the Hispaniola. And of the two nations, uh, Haiti tends to be the poorer one, And while the uh, Dominican Republic is a bit wealthier. But uh, Haiti has some other distinctions, though, is that in 1804, it uh, gathered independence from the uh, French. Uh, before that, it had uh, abolished uh, slavery, and so it's been a slave-free nation for uh, for uh, several hundred years. Anyway, oh, it had this uh, earthquake. Yeah, they had a terrible earthquake that came in January of 2010, and uh, they uh, mainly affected in the southern part of the country, but uh, people... Uh, 
uh, think that uh, 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 that the toll, the death toll, was uh, was maybe three, uh, or in terms of people being affected, was about three million uh, people, and that the death toll was estimated to be anywhere between eighty thousand and uh, two hundred and thirty thousand, depending upon who was doing the counting. So it was a major, major uh, earthquake. But it didn't go that far up the country. It kind of went into the southern part around Port-au-Prince. And so a lot of the damage and so forth that you saw uh, on uh, photos and, uh, and videos and, and, and newscasts of the area was mainly in the Port-au-Prince area and around the southern part of the country. Wow. And uh, I know at the time... Um you point out that there were sort of two scientific theories uh, competing for dominance when it came to explaining the origins of the cholera outbreaks and epidemics. And what were those uh, competing theories? And basically, what was at stake in coming up with the correct understanding of of why the outbreaks occurred? Well, after the uh, cholera uh, uh, earthquake appeared, people were worried that there would be all kinds of diseases coming to uh, to Haiti. And so there's a lot of speculation about that. And nothing happened. Nothing happened in terms of infectious diseases. And then nine months later, in uh, October of 2010, all of a sudden cholera appears in Haiti. And this is very unusual. Uh, later historians uh, uh, looked at this. And uh, they found that uh, there was no evidence that Haiti had ever had cholera. It had just, uh, the organism had passed the island by. Um, they thought at the time it could be because they had abolished slavery, and that meant that there were no slave boats coming from Africa, where cholera was quite common, bringing infected slaves and the like. And nor were there many uh, international traders. It wasn't a uh, wealthy place, and so there weren't a lot of boats coming in from all over the place exchanging products and, and such. So Haiti was pretty well left alone. And then lo and behold, in October, all of a sudden, this thing that had never happened before, a huge cholera outbreak came to the, uh, came to the country. And the cholera, as you mentioned, is uh, caused by a bacterial agent called Vibrio cholerae. And with Vibrio cholerae, uh, there's about 200 different types of it. And that uh, uh, of these 200 types, they're all called Vibrio cholerae. It's kind of like John Smith. Everybody's called John Smith. But that there are other subnames that came after that. But most people, when they hear the term Vibrio cholera, don't recognize that uh, these aren't necessarily all bad cholerae. Of the 200, there's only two that liberate a toxin. And this toxin comes and uh, uh, affects the uh, interior wall. If it gets down, if the organism gets down into your stomach, then it causes severe uh, uh, vomiting. And if it gets into the intestines, then it causes severe diarrhea. And the individuals lose a lot of different fluid, a lot of fluid. And unless that fluid is replenished, they, uh, many of them ended up dying. So that's basically the disease that, uh, that has come. So the theory that you ask about, there's two theories on how cholera comes to some place. And one is the environmental theory, and this is the one that a lot of scientists have thought was the correct theory, that it's done uh, or brought about mainly or, or thought uh, through mainly through research work in uh, Bangladesh and in uh, India and the, uh, the, the uh, southern part of India. 
And that theory is is that uh, these uh, non-deadly cholera, they're swimming around in the water in the estuaries off to the coast of a country, country like Haiti. And then that periodically through something called genomic recombination. That means is that parts were recombined on two different organisms, but they kind of take a little part from this one, a little part from that one, and it comes together. And what forms is a pathogenic organism, a disease-causing organism. And that disease-causing organism then springs forth from these estuaries, and if people happen to be around drinking the water from it and such, it starts a cholera epidemic. That was one theory. There's another theory that uh, has been uh, more recently talked about based on work in Africa and other places, and that is uh, what's called the human activity theory. And that says that you only have to worry about two different types of cholera, these ones that have the toxin, and that those types of cholera have to be brought to some place by humans. And they need, in order to get along and survive and so forth, they need what's called human amplification, which means is that the organism needs to be at humans at some time, and then it grows there, and then it gets defecated out or vomited out, and then it can remain in water and the environment for a short while. But then unless new humans come and swallow it or take it in their food or, or whatnot, that the organism just won't continue. So you have these human activity theory and the uh, environmental theory, two theories on how cholera came to Haiti. Interesting. And um so while we're at the time, what were the scientific organizations and some of the NGOs and I guess the UN saying about the origin of the epidemic in Haiti? Well, when this epidemic started, at first people were very curious about, you know, how did it get started? How did, where did it come from? What uh, what was going on and all? And uh, lo and behold, in, in very short order, uh, officials that were there from our own Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, our CDC epidemiologists that were in Haiti, and then they had a post there for, for quite some while, uh, all of a sudden were saying, well, we're uh, too busy dealing with all these cases. That There were all of a sudden there's, there are thousands of cases of, Haiti had de of cholera had developed in Haiti, and many people were dying, and they said, oh, we're too busy with providing medical care and everything. We can't be worrying about the origin. We just don't have time for the origin. So the uh, Haitian government, needing to know how this all got started, uh, contacted the French embassy, asked them to see whether there was a uh, somebody around, an epidemiologist around in France, who might be able to come in and help them discover what it is that happened, because these epidemiologists from the United States who were down there in country, they didn't seem to be interested in how it started within the uh, country. So they immediately uh, uh, telexed to, to, uh, to France, and they found a, a gentleman in, uh, in Marseille, in the southern part of France, Renaud Perrault. Now, Renaud Perrault is a physician and also has a PhD, so he's a very well-educated man. And he, uh, hearing that Haiti needed him, he quickly took care of affairs, and, uh, and uh, about a week later, ended up in Port-au-Prince, ready for action. Wow. And um, so I guess like some of the people were trying just folk were hyper-focused on containing the contagion rather than trying to find out where the 
uh, disease materialized from or whatever. Um, to those people, why would you, what would you say to say why it matters where the disease originated from? Well, in order to maybe understand this, uh, you could look at our counterparts in the criminology world. And so those are what you normally see on, on TV and whatnot. You see sure. detectives. And if you can imagine that maybe there was a uh, shooting somewhere, like in, in Paris, or like we had in San, San Bernardino, or earlier they had in Denver and whatnot, in which a large number of individuals were killed or injured. And the police come in, the, uh, the uh, ambulance has come in, all kinds of people come in. And uh, the police immediately try to keep order there and, and, and make sure that uh, people are safe. The ambulance come in and get the bodies and take people off to hospitals and so forth. And the detectives come in. Now, the detectives aren't hauling off bodies. They're not wrapping uh, 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 cloths around the injured limbs or anything like that. They only have one purpose for being in there is to find out what happened, who was the perpetrator of this event. And everybody understands that. Of course, detectives have to detect. Well, in epidemiology, who are uh, it's the, uh, the fancy name that we have for disease detectives, we're the same way. When an epidemiologist is called to come in, the reason that they're there is not to take care of bodies. They're there in order to find out about the source, find out what happened so that they can figure out what to do based on the source and uh, how to prevent it in the future. So there's a whole thing about what to do next. You have to know something about the source, and you have to know about uh, future changes in policy and the like. And that if you don't get to your knitting quickly, if you don't get to work fairly quickly, then the path, the footprints and the path to causation get very dim. And next thing you know, you just can't figure it out. So the detectives have to get onto it right away in order before the evidence is messed up and such in order to figure out what it is that was going on. And that's what some of these epidemiologists from CDC said that they were too busy to do. They had others from the regional office of the World Health Organization, from the Pan American Health Organization, that's the name of it there. They said also, it's not within our bailiwick, we're not supposed to be doing the source and so forth. And it was the oddest thing to read in the newspapers that epidemiologists were saying such things. That's what perked up my interest in the first place. Yeah, that's, um, wow. I mean, that's fascinating. And I think, think your analogy um, of the detective really brings it home to, to me. I mean, that, that obviously makes sense, like at a, at a crime scene or, or a terrorism scene or whatever, you know, somebody wants to find out what happened. It can't all just be, you know, not everybody's a paramedic. I mean, that's not everybody's job obviously that's an important job but but people have specialization for a reason and i think that um that you explained that very well and, and um it's interesting that people who are assigned to essentially be the detectives there sort of um said oh that's not what i'm supposed to be doing that's that's kind of surprising um once you frame it that way i i think it makes sense um that people should have been doing that um and then um so i guess earlier you mentioned the two uh, competing theories that people were were sort of dealing with the environmental theory and the human activities theory. Um, why would you say uh, the environmental theory is ultimately a pessimistic one, and the human activity theory actually offers more hope? So the environmental theory assumes that uh, cholera coming to a country or to a place is a little like an earthquake coming. 
or a little bit like a uh, hurricane coming. That, in other words, it's an act of nature. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just going to happen. And the only thing that you can do is prepare yourself for this terrible thing happen. How do you prepare yourself? Well, one of the things that you could do is maybe get everybody vaccinated. If you get them all vaccinated in the whole country, then they'd be resistant to the uh, intrusion of this uh, cholera bacteria coming into their country. Or maybe if you could get everybody, uh, Haiti is a very poor country and it has very uh, bad water and it has inadequate uh, uh, sanitation and such. And so a lot of people defecate on the ground and other places. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not uh, very clean in that regard. So you could try to get proper toilets in the country, proper water in the country and all that, in order to kind of buffer the people away from any cholera that may spring forward to them. So it's not a, uh, how do we say, it's not a theory. The environmental theory is a, uh, is, an, uh, it's a, is a good theory for those who don't want to blame anybody, who want to avoid implicating anybody. Then it seems to be kind of a good theory. But it's a kind of, when we say it's a pessimistic theory, in that it implies that there's nothing that can be done about it. It's just this terrible thing that's going to happen, and there's just absolutely nothing that you can do about it other than to try to prepare yourself as best you can. On the other hand, the human activity theory says, no, no, no. The only way that cholera can come to this country is if somebody brings it, or if it maybe comes in on a boat that uh, maybe is bringing some food products that were contaminated or maybe some water that was contaminated. But there has to be some human activity involved with bringing this to the country. And if you believe that, then it opens up a series of different questions and, and, and things or considerations, things that you might do. One is that you might stop these people from bringing this organism in. You might check people out before they come to the country. You might, after they come to the country, if it's like soldiers and so forth that are coming into the country that are, are, are there and are temporarily in your country or others who are temporarily in the country, you might check, uh, give them a, a piece of paper saying if they showing any signs of diarrhea and the like and all to immediately call a doctor, immediately notify the health facilities. And uh, so there's things like that that you can do if it's human activity, if it's humans bringing it. And so we say that gives you some hope that all of a sudden you can envision some policies or some actions that might you find that it's human activity that brought it versus believing in the environmental theory. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And then um, I guess for our listeners who just joined us, I should mention that we're interviewing Ralph Ferrick, who is author of Deadly River, a book about the cholera epidemic in Haiti after 2010, um, or in 2010, I should say. And um, that epidemic, I guess, uh, the source or uh, came over from a UN peacekeepers, apparently, um, was how uh, some of the people brought it over. Um, and the UN had consistently denied that peacekeepers uh, played a role in the epidemic's origins, um, which I suppose, um, you know, they might want to do that, but why has this denial um, uh, found support from prominent scientists? And could you talk a little bit, I guess, about the how how the cholera got there and 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 what you describe as the cover-up that sort of um, followed? Well, the book title is very revealing: Deadly River, Cholera and Cover-Up Post-Earthquake Haiti. 
So one of the things that we talk about is how cholera got there. Second part to talk about in the book is a cover-up that occurred once some people found how it got there. So the French epidemiologist, before coming to Haiti, was listening to a radio broadcast that came out of Montreal in Canada. And the Montreal station was relating an article that was written by a reporter, a USAP reporter, Associated Press reporter, Jonathan Katz. And Jonathan Katz, on October 28th, had, uh, or excuse me, on October 27th, had uh, joined another reporter from a different network, Al Jazeera, and his name was Sebastian Walker. And both Sebastian Walker and Jonathan Katz, independently on October 27th, about uh, a week after this uh, uh, cholera outbreak became known, had gotten a rumor that maybe it started at a UN peacekeeper camp. Now, for your listeners, they may not know that there are UN peacekeepers in Haiti. As it turns out that since 2004, many years ago, uh, the UN had assigned peacekeepers to Haiti, and these peacekeepers involved soldiers coming from all kinds of different countries. They'd come for six months stints, and they'd come in, and they'd uh, come, and they'd uh, spend time in their camp, and periodically they'd come out of their camp and wander around the country and maintain order, and they'd have their guns and their helmets. They looked like regular soldiers, but they were from different countries, from many different countries, some countries as poor as Haiti, others, others much uh, wealthier in Haiti. But each one of these troops was paid a minimum amount of roughly $1,000 a month, and uh, that uh, then uh, again told to live in their uh, in their uh, in their barracks and their uh, special uh, forts and such. So one of the groups had come from one of these foreign countries, had come from the country of Nepal, which is a country that's equal to Haiti in terms of poverty. And these soldiers had come in and they had gone to an interior base right by a town called Mirabale, which was just in the interior of the country. And these individuals came in, uh, in uh, mid-October, and it was a short while after they appeared that cholera appeared. And this is what Jonathan Katz, the AP reporter, and Sebastian Walker, the Al Jazeera reporter, what they had heard from rumors. So they decided to go out and visit this camp to see what was going on out there while this cholera epidemic was now exploding within the country. And they went there and they found that the camp was a pretty sorry camp, that there was a lot of sanitation problems, leaking pipes, and that uh, the soldiers kind of had a guilty look to them and such. So uh, Sebastian Walker did a video profile of this. that was a video show, but not everybody sees Al Jazeera, so it didn't get as much press. But Jonathan Katz wrote this up for an AP feed, and it went out around the world, showed up, in Montreal in a French version, and that's what Perot heard before he came to the country. So in the back of his mind, he thought, well, that's an interesting theory, but you know, he didn't think too much more about it because he hadn't had a chance to come and, and look around and find out what was going on and stuff like a detective typically does, but he kept it in the back of his mind. So when he showed up in Port-au-Prince on November 7th, 
he went around and spent a few days talking to uh, high officials, the president of the country, the secretary of state of the country, all kinds of uh, high officials and, uh, and epidemiologists and others to try to find out what it is, is that had happened in the country. And he happened to ask, he says, what about this uh, Nepalese peacekeeper theory? He says, oh, no, it's just a rumor. You know how people are. They, they don't like these peacekeepers. They just talk about them. They just make up rumors about them and all that. Nothing to it. Many people told him that. But not all people told him that. Some just kind of looked at him quietly, and it was as if they weren't being allowed to speak, and they wouldn't say a lot about it. And so Perot, all of a sudden, he thought, well, maybe there's something to this, but there's something that nobody wants to tell me about. So sure enough, after a while, he ended up going out to, uh, as part of his investigation, he ended up going out to the same base that, uh, that uh, Jonathan Katz and, and Sebastian Walker had been earlier. And uh, he, he couldn't get in because the, the base was very closed. They weren't going to let outsiders in and such. But uh, he and his staff, they started talking to others around. And they went up to the town of Mirabale, where... Uh, there was a group working there from the Cuban Medical Brigade. The Cubans had sent many doctors to Haiti to help them out as part of their assistance program between these uh, countries. And uh, some of these Cubans ended up in the Cuban Medical Brigade, ended up in the town of Mirabale, and there was a hospital that was there. And when Perot went into that hospital and talked to them, it turns out that these Cubans are, are, are pretty fair doctors. But it turns out they were immaculate record keepers. And they said, yes, we had some of these early cases. And here's when they came in. Here's where they live. You know, here's everything about them and such. And told Perot all about it. So now he was able to fix a time period when this all likely got started, which was in mid-October. So now he had his theory in mind, and he needed to do further investigation to find out what happened next after the thing came, why all of a sudden thereafter, a few days later, was there a huge explosive outbreak that occurred down this long river that flows from Mirabale down to the uh, Caribbean Sea, and in the lower part, the delta region of this uh, agricultural area, there was a huge cholera outbreak there. He had to figure out that riddle as well, why that happened. Wow, and so through his detective work, I guess, or, or you know, but the equivalent of detective work, he was able to sort of piece back the origins or, or connect it to some of those early things. And um, so I guess why would, um, and I think to some extent this is already answered, but why why would, would this be considered then, do you think this would be a cover-up, a, uh, a disagreement between reasonable people about the origins? Well, some of the scientists who believed in the environmental theory said that, though this started in a coastal town called St. Mark. And the coastal town was at the uh, coastal region of a great river, the Artipanite River, which is the equivalent of the Mississippi in the United States. Big river flows through the country, flows from the, uh, from, uh, the east, and flows uh, northwest to the Caribbean Sea. So the environmental group said, no, 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 this was started in St. Mark and then worked its way somehow or another against the current up the Artipanite River. Versus the human activity theorists said, no, 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 this started with these human peacekeepers 
these uh, UN peacekeepers from Nepal, and it started in Mirbele in the interior, worked its way somehow or another into the river, and then flowed with the river down towards the coast. And both of these groups could agree with one another that it started somewhere in Haiti. Obviously, it was, it was clear that there was an epidemic in Haiti, so that was the only agreement there. They couldn't agree yeah. on the location where it started, nor could they agree on the method and how it got underway. So there was quite a bit of debate. The next thing that happened is that uh, Perot was checking out these grand maps that the UN had created. And lo and behold, in these maps, it used to be at the beginning of the epidemic that they told the proper story, exactly what happened, that how uh, you had this uh, area where it looked like uh, cholera uh, uh, got underway, and then they had a special area that they focused in where there's cholera was very intensive, which is after this explosive part of the uh, epidemic. And uh, so they thought that uh, the UN maps were, he thought the UN maps were okay, but that he noticed after the two reporters had been in, uh, in the UN uh, peacekeeping camp and had posted their stories, that the day after that, the next map in a series of maps that the UN had produced was altered. The legend of the map, while before it said that downriver that these places where cholera occurred, they just said cholera occurred there. But now all of a sudden, they changed their tune on the legend, and this is, this is the area, the downriver area, is the place where cholera began. Now, in reality, cholera began in the upriver part of the country, not in the downriver part. So the UN, it seemed, was trying to turn everybody's attention, pretending that this thing got started in the downriver part, which fell in with the scientists who believed in the environmental theory and discounted the scientists who believed in the human activity theory and discounted that these UN peacekeepers who came to the interior of the country could have been the ones who started it. The cover-up got started. Interesting, yeah. And it, it almost seems like they can't even agree on which way the river flows. But <laughs> I mean, they do, but I mean, you know, it seems logical to no, me. No, I think they uh, know exactly which way the river flows, yeah. but they didn't know, Keith. <laughs> what they didn't know is they didn't know the direction that the sanitary waste flows in the river. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. You're right. <laughs> and you could say and, it in um, the vernacular. They knew some of the flow, but they just didn't know which part was going in which direction. Yep. And then um, even the CDC mentioned the Center for Disease Control investigators were uh, reluctant to identify UN peacekeepers as the source of cholera in Haiti. Um, why Why were they reluctant to identify the peacekeepers as, as the source? I had I had exactly the same question. You know, I, I mentioned to you that I was at the beginning of the epidemic. I was very interested in this. Uh, part of the reason also was that I was at, still teaching a summer class on epidemiology at UCLA. And I'm always looking around for great examples for the students, you know, some exciting epidemiologic phenomena that's occurring somewhere. And uh, I was thinking that uh, this Haiti one was a great one because it, you know, never been there before. All of an explosive outbreak. And so I uh, started looking at this closely and in fact, I even made up a website on it because the stories were so interesting to me. And as I mentioned, as soon as I heard that the uh, CDC people didn't want to know the source, I knew something 
was dramatically wrong. So I paid close attention. But I had no idea what that something was. All I knew is that they made this odd statement about not, not looking for the source, not willing to look for the source. And, uh, but I couldn't quite figure out what it is that happened. A little bit later, I was looking at a uh, website of the U.S. Department of State. It turns out that CDC is in the Department of Health and Human Services, and they're directly responsible to the department, to the head of the Department of Health and Human Services. And so they're like any entity. I thought they were apolitical, that they weren't political at all. They didn't respond like the FBI, that they didn't respond uh, too much to political pressure. But uh, as it turns out, I was wrong, or at least I think I'm wrong, that uh, what we think happened is that the Department of State, another one on the same level as the Department of Health and Human Services, that uh, they had uh, uh, posted in early September, right before cholera got started, they had, it was kind of fortuitous, that they had posted a statement on their website. And on that, in that statement they wrote, increasing the effectiveness of UN peacekeeping is one of the highest priorities for the United States at the United Nations. Then they went on to explain that multilateral peacekeeping shares the risks and responsibilities of maintaining international peace and security and is a cost-effective way to help achieve U.S. strategic and humanitarian interests. A powerful statement. And what I think happened is that uh, somebody at the Department of State to somebody at the Department of Health and Human Services and that somebody at Human Health and Services talked to the director of the Centers for Disease Control and said, listen, these peacekeepers, if you incriminate these peacekeepers in Haiti, that's going to cause a lot of trouble for us, not only in Haiti, where they're supposed to be maintaining, maintaining law and order, but in other parts of the world as well. And we can't be sending American troops to all these places. You know, we're only paying these people $1,000 a month. I mean, our regular troops cost much, much more than that. So we're getting by in a cost-effective way, maintaining order, using these poor uh, people and their mercenary armies that we've created. We're getting by, and, uh, and we're doing quite well with that. And we don't want to mess it up with finding out or incriminating UN peacekeepers who came to Haiti. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it makes sense. I mean, I, I see how the politics um, could become involved in something like that, and so that's that's really interesting. And like you, I would have... Now, I'll, I tell you, I'll tell you, Keith, all of this really sure. bothered me because professor in a school of public health. My yep. friends and I, we tend to be on the liberal side, always sitting there and we look at organizations like the UN, great organization, powerful organization. I, I, in early in my profession, I've always thought of CDC as a wonderful organization out there fighting disease, coming up with different ways, you know, doing outbreak investigations, all these different things. So I, in my own mind, kind of glorified these organizations. These were people trying to do good work. And you might think the same. The question, yeah, the fundamental extent, question, sure. though, <laughs> yeah, the fundamental thing that I think makes this interesting, this book interesting, is probably and why it should be interesting to your audience, 
because your audience tends to be a progressive audience. Am I am I correct about that? Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So progressive people, liberal people, and so forth and all that. So what makes this interesting is what happens when a liberal progressive organization goes bad. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of complexity here, and it's certainly. Uh, the way this story is retold, I mean, obviously the the cover up is is wrong. I mean, there's really serious issues here, and so I mean, well, and um, that's right. And so, so my feeling was, of, go ahead. My feeling was once I got over the shock that you know, well, they, I mean, they have to do just like any organization, whether it's whether it's a chemical company or an oil company with oil spills and so forth. The first thing that they have to do is that they have to assume responsibility. They have to say, yes, yeah. we did it and accept responsibility. Sometimes they're reluctant to do it, right? And we get enraged and we say, how can they not assume responsibility? But what happens when a progressive organization won't assume responsibility? And that's what happened with the UN. They wouldn't assume responsibility. Turns out that more and more studies were done, more evidence came along, an endless array. Other scientists got involved in it. The evidence kept accumulating more and more. Perot published his findings. He published a whole series of articles and other things that they did in Haiti, and all of it pointed to the UN peacekeepers as bringing cholera to Haiti, and they would not assume responsibility. Then, as it turns out, this epidemic got larger and larger and eventually ended up officially killing around 9,000 people. Now, this is only a country of 10 million. It's not a huge country. 9,000 people. And then some other scientists came along who studied the epidemic early in its course, and they said, oh, you know, in those first few months, there was a lot of chaos, big undercounting. And they estimate now that by now it's killed maybe 11, 12,000 people. So a huge number of Haitians, almost all black, in this, uh, uh, in this uh, independent country where we were supposed to be there helping them, all of these individuals ended up dying, and uh, no one was taking responsibility. So there was a human rights group that was in Port-au-Prince that teamed up with a, another human rights group in Boston. And these two groups got on the offensive. And they went out and they started interviewing whatnot families of, the, of, 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 of those who, who died in Haiti and uh, got all their names and so forth. And they decided that what they would do is, uh, one, is to, uh, to make sure that the U.N. said that they were responsible. But two, is ask for some kind of compensation for all of these individuals who were the breadwinner. And even the, uh, the others in the household, sometimes the mother, the father, sometimes the children, different people died in the household, sometimes all but one in the household. And there was no one there to care for them. It was a huge devastation that occurred. And the UN, which is, seems to be the organization that caused all this, wouldn't assume responsibility and offered nothing in the way of compensation. So now, separate from this epidemiologic investigation, a huge human rights lawsuit went forward. And now they started relying on the epidemiologic investigation for proof of what occurred. 
and uh, but but they basically went their separate way. Bernard Perot is not a, a human rights activist; he's an epidemiologist, and so he went about finding his evidence and planning for ways to uh, control. Uh, 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 cholera in Haiti, and eventually, hopefully, eliminate it. While the human rights group went about its lawsuit and uh, suing uh, the uh, the uh, UN for what it is is that it uh, did within the uh, country. And so, there's a lot of how do we say angry people situation, feeling that the U.S. did not do right, and the UN did not do right in this situation. Yeah, understandably so, and um. Um, where would you say now that the uh, more or less the political and scientific communities stand on the origin of the the cholera epidemic in Haiti? Are, are, is there widespread agreement now that the, um, of how it occurred and stuff, and some kind of recognition and awareness, or or is there still people arguing against it? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you've probably seen these advertisements for toothpaste on television where they say 99% of all dentists, you know, endorse this. Oh, topic, sure, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of the way it is in this case, is that I think it's that the evidence, and, and our book uh, summarizing now the evidence that, that was there and some articles that we wrote before, I think the evidence is now so overwhelming because Perot not only did his thorough investigation, but there were some others that helped us in the investigation that came along, and the complete story has now been told on how cholera got there, why it had this explosive outbreak, how it spread, all of that is now known. And so there's probably only a handful of scientists who don't believe or maybe still don't fully believe that this is how it occurred, but uh, I just don't know them. I don't know them. I don't, you know, you never say 100% in in science. You don't get complete agreement. But in general, there's agreement. The other issue, though, is that there is still, uh, how do we say, there's still, uh, the the, the two different theories still come into play because some people don't want to admit that they were totally wrong about how cholera came to Haiti. And uh, they still semi-believe in the environmental theory, even though they don't fully state that they do. And uh, what they want to do is that they want to initiate fairly expensive uh, vaccination programs that have to vaccinate everybody in the country uh, and uh, do it to re-vaccinate them every three years or so. And right now, I mean, they've managed to get maybe up to 400,000 or so of the 10 million people. So it's about 4%. So it hasn't been going all that well. And they also came forward and said, oh, no, no, you know what we've got to do is we've got to improve all their toilets and all their uh, all their water systems and such. And so they came forward with a uh, 2.1 or $2.2 billion program. Billion. Now I'm saying not million, billion. And uh, they said that uh, we need to improve the sanitation water for all of Hispaniola. That means for Haiti and for the Dominican Republic. And it's going to only cost you, the world, $2.1 or $2.2 billion. Well, the world, you know, is still kind of getting over this whole uh, recession that we had in 2008. Times are not the best in a lot of places. And, uh, and, you know, we've got our own problems. Our roads aren't the best. And our schools need help. And health care needs help. All these things. So everybody's not necessarily into providing uh, a couple of billion dollars to Haiti to help with all this. 
So the uh, Haitians have found that, uh, and this, or the UN has found that they were a only able to uh, to uh, get about 18% of their hoped for funds, and even then, the 18% was only promised; it wasn't really in the bank. So that campaign has been going along, and the problem with that campaign, what 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 uh, the, some of us feel, is that when Perot, following the human activity theory, he did a lot of research, and he found that the organism, the pathogenic one, the one that creates toxins, cannot exist for very long in the environment on its own without infecting some other person. So he came up with a scheme, which I thought was really clever, based on what he'd seen in the uh, small island nation of Madagascar in, uh, in Africa, which also had a cholera epidemic uh, years and years ago. And uh, they followed a procedure somewhat like I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Perot set up a surveillance program that he was going to use with uh, little sensors throughout the country in what were called the communes, which is the smallest administrative unit that they have. So he had this commune-specific uh, surveillance program, and he was going to apply it in the dry season. Uh, Haiti has a dry season and a wet season, and when the wet season comes, cholera goes crazy. When the dry season is there, then cholera is kind of at lower levels. So he was going to catch cholera when it was his lower level, and during the dry season, use this surveillance uh, system to tell him where the little hot spots were of cholera. And he sent a team then out to where these little hot spots were, kind of like a, a brush fire in California, sent a team out to where these hot spots were, and they put out the hot spots by uh, giving the household uh, chlorine to chlorinate their uh, water, by treating any of the cholera cases that were there, and providing some, uh, some health education uh, for the uh, people in the area. Such So he'd put out each one of these little cholera hotspots, and the idea would be if you can get rid of the pathogenic, the disease-causing form of the cholera during the dry season, that when the wet season comes, there's no cholera to amplify. It's gone. And so that theory worked reasonably well when he got started, but a lot of people you know, were a little bit more interested in the vaccination campaigns. And they didn't want to participate in this elimination strategy. And other people thought, well, you know, holding out for these toilets and clean water, and that's a great program and all that. You know, I don't know why we have to cooperate with this elimination group. You know, we, we need to uh, fight this uh, another way. So they couldn't get a unified front. And they almost got rid of cholera a few years back almost eliminated it, but there were some areas where they just couldn't get everybody mobilized, where they just couldn't get everybody on board. And next thing you know, rainy season comes, things start up again, and now they're uh, the, the, politically the, the country is kind of in shambles now. They're in between presidents, and there's no leadership as, as such. So things are not uh, very good right now. But what we're hoping is that with the book and with the talk about cholera elimination, what to do and so forth, that people will get excited about that. All these different groups will come together. They'll want to join in and hopefully we'll have a united front and be able to rid Haiti of cholera forever. We think that's the best present that can be given to the Haiti, Haitian people, not necessarily all these other things that people talk about, but just getting them back to where they were before this terrible epidemic struck their country.
Yeah, I mean, uh, it certainly sounds like, I mean, to me, <laughs> the right approach. I'm um, having listened to you and and uh, and from the book, and I, I, you know, I hope that that catches hold and that that's where the effort and energy is put because it does seem like the the correct strategy based on what what we now know or or what appears to be the case. Um, and with that in mind, I guess we're we're running close to the end of the hour, but uh, but uh, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I'm sure uh, many of our readers will take interest in this as well. A lot of important questions uh, there. Um, so um, for our listeners, um, where can they go to, uh, for one, purchase the book, and also just in general if they want to find out information or, or uh, look up stuff online or follow you, um, where, where can people do some of those things? Well, the name of the book is Deadly River, Collar and Cover-Up in Post-Earthquake Haiti. If they just go to Amazon and put in Deadly River, Barnes & Noble, Deadly River, or if they go to the publisher, which is Cornell University Press, they could put it in. The other thing that Very I've good. done, I recognize that not everybody likes reading as their first interest, but they like looking at pictures. So I've created a visual website with 322 slides on it, organized by chapter, showing you maps, showing you the people that are involved in the drama, showing you basically the concepts, the epidemiologic concepts that are going on. And you can find that free right now at www.deadlyriver. That's all one word, deadlyriver.com. So deadlyriver.com and the deadlyriver.com website will not only show you these visuals, but it will tell you also where you can purchase the book, tell you a little bit more about the book, tell you a little bit more about me, and uh, get you on your way. Very good. And, yeah, I'll try to put up a link to that uh, website on our Liberal Fix Facebook page to um, get some traffic. We're not like a huge site, but certainly um, people who listen to the show, it will be a reminder when they go there and they can uh, purchase it there because I – I think many people find it uh, of interest and a very important topic as well. So, um, And I wanted to thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Friday evening. And, again, I apologize to you and our listeners for our slight delay at the beginning of the show but uh, uh, with the computer problems, but grateful to have you on. And, and thank you so much uh, for uh, spending your Friday evening with us and sharing this with us about your very important book. Well, thank you, Keith. I enjoyed talking to you and your listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, you have a wonderful rest of the weekend, and uh, and thank you again. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Thank you very much. <laughs>